right, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you. Uh, so kids, you guys are dismissed to the children's ministry. So preschoolers through fifth grade and then um, middle and high school, you can head out with Pastor Chris over there. A uh, special shout out this morning to Dr. Vern, who typically sits down here, uh, Vernon and Sharon and their son, John. Sharon is, of course, of course, faithfully serving this morning in the children's ministry. Vern is at home recovering from some health uh, issues, but he is celebrating his 85th birthday today, and he's with us online. So big applause for Dr. Vern. No, we have some other recent important birthdays that I <laughs> laughing over there. Welcome to the 50 Club. <laughs> Vinny, thank you. I told you, I, if I know about your birthday, it's fair game. So Vinny's was yesterday. So if I missed your birthday, it's just because I didn't know about it. But um, what a blessing, Andy. Thanks for sharing that from Mark chapter 12. I don't think we'll ever get there at the rate that I'm going. And uh, I do love Mark, too, because he's so direct. But I'll tell you, it takes a special gift to complicate Mark the way that I can. So with that said, we turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at a great section of Scripture this morning. They're all great sections of Scripture, but this one uh, I'm just especially excited about. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, this time in his word. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that you're doing here uh, through our fellowship, Lord, and through the ministries here. We pray that you'd continue to pour out your blessing on those things, Lord. And we pray that same thing now, Lord, as we go to your word. We pray that you would bless this time, Lord, as we turn to the scriptures, Lord. We pray that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, and that he would be the one to give us understanding of, uh, of what it is you've said to us, Lord. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts today. Knit our hearts together with your heart, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So by the way, if you're visiting today or if you're visiting with us online, we're super glad uh, to have you. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're kind of on your own. So go over to the bookcase and, and grab one. But if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we can help you with that. So just raise your hands and one of the guys will, uh, will come down and give you a Bible and show you where we're going to be in the text today. Uh, so Mark chapter 1, uh, you know, we're continuing just in this first chapter, but of this fast-moving account that Mark gives us of the life of Jesus. And so far we've watched Jesus. He's come onto the scene, right? And he came and he was baptized by John the Baptist down there, kind of in the muddy, mighty Jordan River. Uh, this was the sort of signifying the very official beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And we saw the way that the Holy Spirit very significantly, very supernaturally came upon him. And we talked about the fact that this is what enabled and empowered and would equip him for all of this ministry that we're going to see Jesus do. And then the very next thing, the very first thing that we saw the Spirit do was to drive Jesus into the wilderness, drove him in there for this time of testing and temptation, a time of preparation for that ministry, but as much as also a time of demonstration of his ability to carry out this ministry that he has and of the authority and the superiority that he has over Satan himself. And of course, this morning, Mark's going to continue right on along kind of those same lines because today's text is all about authority. It's all about the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus over, over every aspect, both of the creation as well, of course, of our lives. And that Jesus came onto the scene and he demonstrated this absolute authority over everyone and everything in a way that had never been seen or been heard before. And Mark makes this very important fact. He makes it perfectly crystal clear right here at the outset of Jesus' ministry. And the way that he does this in this first chapter is by recording for us what is really one of the very first full days of Jesus' ministry up here in this region of the Galilee. 
We saw last time, remember, he had just called these first four men to come with him to become fishers of men, right? We saw Andrew and Peter and James and John, these two different sets of these fishermen brothers who had been with Jesus previously, but now had sort of would be him with him exclusively, leaving their lives and leaving their livelihoods as fishermen to go serve alongside him to become fishers of men, right, with the great servant of God. And so we're picking up now, just after their calling, up there in that northern part of Israel, in that region of the Galilee. It's that, it's that same area that we saw that Jesus entered into last time. It said he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, this declaration that he now was about to introduce an entirely new kingdom into human history. That it would be a kingdom unlike anything that they had ever seen, unlike anything that the people were expecting. And it's from there that we read next, look what it says picking up in verse 21 of Mark chapter 1. It says, then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, the city of Capernaum was a thriving city up there in the Galilee, right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the central cities of this area. And it's the, the, the area where most of the public ministry of Jesus would take place. Jesus actually will make Capernaum kind of his headquarters. And then from there, he'll go out to all the different parts of the country. And so here... On the Sabbath, or it says immediately on the Sabbath, which means that on the very next Sabbath, right, immediately after Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, they all attend the synagogue together because, of course, that's what you all did together on the Sabbath day. Now, understand, the synagogue, just to clarify, the synagogue is not the temple, Right? So the temple where the sacrifices were made and where the priesthood served, that was in Jerusalem. Now synagogues, on the other hand, they were spread all throughout the countryside of Israel. Synagogue simply means a meeting place. And so this is the place where the Jews would meet, not for sacrifices and not for religious rituals, but they would meet for study and for worship and for prayer. And the synagogues actually came into being during the captivity of the Jews in Babylon. They were there in captivity. Of course, they weren't able to come to the temple and to worship and to make sacrifices as the law demanded. So they started instead to get together in order to discuss and to just reflect on the law and what it was that those sacrifices actually were for. And that practice of meeting together in these smaller groups, these synagogues, it just continued right from the Babylonian captivity back into their occupation of the land again. And it continues right up until today in the present day. There are synagogues spread all over the world. Now, in ancient times, any city where there were at least 10 adult Jewish men, they could then establish a synagogue just like this one here in Capernaum. Now, when we make our visit to Israel at some point, when we can put a trip together, we will visit the ruins of a fourth century synagogue that was built right on the foundation of this very first century synagogue where today's text will happen. The place exactly where Jesus would have stood and would have taught actually probably on many occasions. See, each of the synagogues, they were maintained not by the priesthood, but by the people in each different city. There was usually a synagogue leader called the ruler of the synagogue. He was the one who would kind of plan and maintain the, the weekly synagogue services, which always included, and, and still to this day they include, a teaching from the word of God. So there was always a teaching, but there wasn't a set teacher. So each synagogue, instead of having a set teacher, they would just open each Sabbath service 
to kind of a visiting rabbi or a scribe or another kind of a learned guest who just happened to be there on that particular day. And so on this particular day, right, for the first time in the synagogue here, it was Rabbi Jesus, right? This kind of a rising voice now within the Jewish community, right? He had this kind of a radical message about this sort of a new kind of kingdom. So now it was Rabbi Jesus who had the floor and who was invited to teach that day, and teach he did. Look what we read in verse 22. It says that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now what's interesting here, characteristic of Mark, of course, Mark doesn't actually tell us what Jesus taught. He doesn't tell us the specific passage. He doesn't give us the points of the passage. You know, that's not his point is it in writing his gospel? So he doesn't tell us what Jesus taught, but he does tell us how the people responded to what Jesus taught, and that is that they were astonished by his teaching. Now that word astonished, it, it kind of is a huge understatement in terms of what that word really meant in the original language. Literally, it means they were astounded or they were struck out of their senses. Right, they were overwhelmed as if to be like struck by a blow. We today would probably say these guys had their minds blown right, by this teaching. Right? The idea is that when Jesus taught the word of God, these people were so deeply, deeply impacted by this teaching in a way that they simply had never been before. And it wasn't because he had clever illustrations. It wasn't because he had an outline with alliteration, right? We're told by Mark why it was that they were so impacted, why it was that they were so astonished. It was a very, very specific reason. What does it say? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, in those days... The scribes were seen, they were the experts in the scriptures, right? Them, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, kind of the religious leaders of the nation. But there were no printing presses in those days, and so every copy of the law or every copy of the scriptures had to be hand copied, and it was the scribes, they were the ones who copied them. So these were men whose entire lives were given over to being copyists of the word of God. And because of this very close relationship they had with the word of God, they became known as the experts in the law or in the Old Testament. They studied it. They knew it. They knew the word, word for word, right? And inside and out. And yet the problem, the problem that happened with the scribes over time is, is this, in all this handling of the word of God, it all became very systematic. It all became very academic. And so to them, the Bible started to become just sort of supreme, supremely this book that God had filled with all these stories and, and commands and all these different things that he gave supremely as subjects to be debated and discussed. So much so that when the scribes taught the scriptures, all they really did was they would give you all of the varying different opinions by all of the varying different rabbis as related to a passage, and then they would just allow you to come up with whatever you wanted to believe so as not to offend any of the people who were there in the synagogue. And so they would get up and they would read it and they would say, well, Rabbi Cohen believes this about the passage and Rabbi Hillel believes this about the passage, but Rabbi Shammai believes this about the passage, right? But on this day, in this synagogue on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they had all just discovered what Rabbi Jesus believed about the passage. And that is significant, of course, because he's the one who wrote the passage. Imagine this, you have the word of God teaching the word of God. You have the word become flesh, who's now fleshing out in the flesh 
his teaching to these men. You have the very author of the word of God now teaching the word of God with an authority right. that only the author could have. So this is his authority through the word of God. And no doubt, as Jesus spoke to these people, can you just imagine the way that he gave meaning to his words in a way that no one had ever done before? Even the prophets, even all of the prophets that had come before in the time of the Old Testament, they did speak the very word of God. And yet, if you go back through the prophets in your Bible, you know, as you go through, you always find the prophets saying the same thing. And what is it they say? They say, thus says the Lord. In fact, somebody who counted them 1,200 times in the book of prophets and another 1,500 times in the Pentateuch, right? Or the first five books of Moses. That's how many times the prophets say, thus says the Lord. And then they go ahead and they speak the words that the Lord gave them to speak. Right? They were speaking on his behalf to his people, speaking not from their own authority, right? but speaking from God's authority. And yet, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. He never says it. What does Jesus say instead? He says, I say to you. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus doesn't need to say, thus saith the Lord, because he is the Lord who's saying it. And again, imagine the way this would have blown their minds, right? They could sense that something here was very different. There was an authority. And what we need to remember is that he is still speaking with this very same kind of authority through his word today. Nothing at all has changed about Jesus. The problem today is that people aren't listening to him. Right? People aren't looking to him to know what it is that he's saying. And what we have today is we have way too many scribes standing up there in the church today just kind of throwing out what they think or throwing out what other people think about the scriptures instead of just simply letting us know what the scriptures say about themselves, what Jesus says about himself in the scriptures. There's no authority, right? We're just kind of floating all of these ideas out there for people so that they can just do whatever they want with them. They can accept them, they can reject them, they could come up with their own interpretation, right, of whatever that passage means to them. Can I tell you guys something? And you know how much I love you, right? It does not matter what the passage means to you, okay? All that matters is what the passage means, right? All that matters is what the Holy Spirit himself meant when he breathed those words out onto that page through whatever human author he was using at the time. Now, it absolutely, it can speak to you and it should speak to you in a personal, a direct, unique way, right? That's what it means when it talks about the word of God being living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Right, the way that it does, it pierces to the division even of soul and spirit, right? But it only does that because it means what it means. So understand the Holy Spirit had an original intention behind every word of every passage. And what we need to do, right, our job as Christians, each of us as individual Christians, is to discover what that was, to understand it, and then to communicate that original meaning because that's where the authority is. So here's kind of a funny story. After I had come and I'd been pastoring the church here for probably six or eight months, one of the brothers in the church, a wonderful man, a faithful servant, unfortunately, he has since moved away. But he wrote me one of these emails and he said, you know, he'd love to take me to lunch because he had some things he wanted to share with me. Now, can I just tell you, those are not the Monday emails that I like to get, right? But at any rate, we got together, we had a wonderful lunch, and he shared that, first of all, he was really being ministered to by the teachings, and, and so that was great. But then he said this, he said, but Pastor Bill, 
it seems like you quote a lot of other Bible verses each week. He said, it's almost like you're trying to prove that what you're saying is true. And I just looked at him and I said, well, you're on to me because that's exactly what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to prove to you that what I'm saying is true because that's where the authority is, right? They're not, it's not in my words, it's in Jesus' words. And what happens as we are listening to the word of God being taught, you know, there may be times when we might, we're not maybe sure we're agreeing with it or we're even understanding or where in the world is this guy headed with this point that he's trying to make. But when that teacher says, it's like we see written over here in the scripture, or when that teacher says, it's, you know, it's like Paul, or it's like Peter, or it's like James explained over here, or best yet, when that teacher says, as we see that Jesus said, right, and then they quote a verse that's in its proper context, right, they give an example maybe from the life of Jesus, and that verse or that example, it applies and it supports that specific subject, what happens is then immediately we can release ourselves into the truth. We now can accept that this is a biblical truth, right? That this is the truth of this particular passage because Jesus is the authoritative voice on any subject related to the Bible and related to our lives. Who in the world cares what I think? Certainly not my kids, right? And probably not you guys. I don't have any of the answers, but the Bible has all of them. It is the authority for our lives. And every bit of the Bible was given to us for a reason. There's a purpose, right? There's the commandments are in the Bible. The parables are in the Bible. The poetry is in the Bible. The prophecy is in the Bible. All of the lessons concerning the life of Israel and concerning the life of Jesus, all of it is included for us in the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's all there for a reason. And that reason is not so that we can sit around and discuss and debate it with all of the other scribes on some ap academic level, right? As if it was written somehow so that people could come up with their own ideas and just believe anything they want. And yet, that's precisely the view that most people have, both outside and inside the church. You know, the, the reality is most people have absolutely no idea what Jesus actually said. The people in the churches don't actually even know. So how in the world are the people outside the church going to know? But what we need to remember is that these authoritative words that Jesus spoke, they weren't just for his generation. They are still words that are living and that are powerful today. And our job is simply to get those words out into the lives of the people around us just as often as we possibly can do that. We're trying to infuse truth into the culture. Because you guys probably know better than I, we live in a world of conflicting opinions about everything under the sun. And we're living in a culture presently that is just in a continuous debate about anything and everything. And so much of it is about stuff that is absolutely unworthy. It's trivial. It's not worth the attention that's being given to it. And yet, there are still a number of questions out there that are of absolutely vital importance. And what people need to know is that Jesus is the one who actually has answers to all of those questions. And I'm talking about the big questions, right? The, the how did I get here questions. The why am I here? What am I doing here questions. And most importantly, what happens to me once I'm not here anymore kind of questions. These are those big questions that are out there that still haunt, and frankly, they should haunt every single person until that person discovers the answers that Jesus gave, right? Jesus is the one who has the answers and he is still speaking today with this same astounding authority. He is still blowing minds today, just like he did in Capernaum in the synagogue 2,000 years ago. And you can bet 
right, that as these people finally got out of service, they had plenty to talk about at Hobie's over lunch, right? But wait, right, there's more because the service isn't quite over yet. Did you guys read ahead? It says in verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. So this is a man who has a, a demon has possessed him. It says there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, let us alone, I'm not gonna do the demon voice, let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right, so this is why you never wanna miss church. Right, because you never know what could happen, right? Imagine these people, right? Try, think about it. They have just heard this jaw-dropping teaching from Jesus when all of a sudden up stands brother Malachi, right? Or brother Mordecai or whatever this brother's name was. And suddenly this demonic voice cries out, right? This unclean spirit cries out from his lips directly challenging Jesus. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about demons today. There are going to be plenty of more opportunities in Mark's account to talk about that. Specifically, we're going to talk about it probably in much more detail when we get into chapter 5. We're going to see this severely demon-possessed man. But demons, of course, are simply evil spirits. They're fallen angels who can possess, or at least they can oppress, individual people. And they have been wreaking havoc on humanity from the very beginning, and they're still doing it today. Now, what's interesting is that it seems from the language of this verse, look at the way it's written, it seems as though this guy who had this unclean spirit within him, that he was a regular part of their synagogue. It says that he was there in their synagogue, like on a regular basis, probably with no problems, and yet it wasn't until Jesus came it wasn't until the word of God was declared here for the first time with this power and with authority, suddenly now this demon becomes very, very vocal. Now, a little bit of background that I think is going to be super helpful for us in understanding what's really happening here. Remember we mentioned last time that in this region up in the Galilee, this northern part of Israel, it was a mixed region, right? Jews and Gentiles all mixed together. We talked about the fact that the Bible had predicted that the Messiah would come first to this area where the Jews had been struggling so long under this kind of Gentile oppression. But what we didn't really discuss was the fact that this oppression wasn't just physical, it really was primarily spiritual. Remember that prophecy from Isaiah that we looked at last time? It said, it talked about Galilee of the Gentiles and this people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So there was this great spiritual darkness that had overtaken this entire region because Although most of the western side of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Jewish and was very religious, the entire eastern side of the sea was very much Gentile. We're going to see in chapter 5, Mark's, Mark makes reference to the Decapolis. Of course, Deca means ten. So the Decapolis is this whole region of these ten different cities on the eastern side. These were Greek cities that eventually, of course, then became Roman cities, and they were filled with all the things that you would find in any Greek or Roman city. They were filled with these idolatrous temples to these pagan deities, filled with houses of prostitution, filled with all of the different abominable things and the licentious living, which then just permeated that Greco-Roman kind of culture at that time. And it was just across the water, right? Just down the coast from Capernaum here. And so that influence had spilled right over into the entire region of the Galilee and it brought this demonic darkness to the entire area. 
right? You have the southern part of the country, right? The religious headquarters with Jerusalem down there. But boy, up here in the north, it was a very different climate. Right? It was like the wild, wild west, spiritually speaking. And yet, this is the very region where Jesus chooses to set up his ministry headquarters. Right here, effectively, in the headquarters of Satan himself. And I think that that's just such, in and of itself, that's such a great reminder for us as the church and us as individual Christians that God has called us really to permeate the darkness, right? He has called us to go into and even to live in these dark, cultural, you know, spiritually dark places and to bring the light of the gospel into these areas and not to shy away or to run away from them. And what we see now as Jesus is starting out in this public ministry, we're going to see in these pages of the book of Mark that rightly all hell is breaking loose in a, in a very literal sense. So here's this demon in this man who had likely sat there in this synagogue undetected, right? Day after day, week after week, month after year after year, this man plagued by a demon who just kept quiet as the scribes every week just kind of droned on and on. But all of a sudden now Jesus shows up. And we have this demon here inside of this man. And look how, again, look how he responds. Look again at verse 24. He says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, understand that when this demon here uses the word us, he's not just referring to himself and this poor man whose body he's taken over. The words go so much beyond just that because the sense of the original language here, the demon is actually using a very specific Hebrew idiom. or It's a specific expression from the Hebrew culture. We see it used a number of times in the Old Testament. We see it in Joshua, in Judges. We see it in 2 Samuel. But it describes really a struggle between two opposing forces. So it's us as in us versus them kind of a thing. And more specifically, the people of God versus the enemies of God. And so this demon could see very clearly that just the presence of Jesus now on the scene was an ultimate threat to the power and the activity of the entirety of the demonic kingdom. Right? All of these demonic forces that had operated all too freely and nearly unchecked until Jesus arrived. Because notice specifically, this demon was very, very well aware of exactly who Jesus was. Both in his humanity, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth, but also in his deity, he recognized him as the Holy One of God. This demon is deeply theologically accurate. He's very precise about the person of Jesus. And we know, James tells us, that there are rightly, there are no atheist demons. Right? James says, you believe there is one God, you do well. He says, even the demons believe and tremble. Every demon believes because they all know that God exists. And they knew that he had just stepped onto earth in the flesh, into human history, and they knew that their time, their kind of unfettered reign here on earth was about to come to a close. Because in comes this kingdom, right? This new kingdom of light and of power. And this is a very clear acknowledgement of this reality. This demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows exactly what G Jesus had come to do. And he is greatly disturbed by the fact that Jesus is there. And so he cries out in this dramatic, I'm sure frightening way. And he's really crying out on behalf of the whole of the kingdom of darkness. It says in verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. 
And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. So that's it, right? It was done. The demon had absolutely no choice. He was forced to recognize and to submit to the authority of Jesus and to come immediately out of the man. Right, with just this one final cry of, of frustration and angst. It's interesting, those words cried out with a loud voice. It has this sense of like, a, like this was a guttural kind of a shriek that came from this demon and then it was over. He doesn't say anything more. Jesus had told him to speak no more and so he didn't because he couldn't. Now don't tell the kids in the children's ministry this because I think they're not supposed to say this anymore. But the best way to really understand what Jesus said when he said be quiet and come out of him, more simply what Jesus said is shut up and get out. That's what Jesus said. And the demon did it and this was over. And whenever I read this account, I always think, you know that scene, maybe I'm dating myself here, but that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? There's that, they're doing that chase through the bazaar and the, the crowd suddenly parts and then you see the assassin, right, with the sword. And he's all dressed in black and he's got the red sash and he's got this huge, scary looking sword. And what does he start to do? He starts like brandishing it all around very menacingly and, you know, to intimidate Indiana Jones and the crowd. And, and for a moment, of course, we all think, wow, this might just cause a problem. You know, this might be a little bit of a, a problem for Indiana Jones until, what, he takes out his gun and just shoots the guy dead and he falls over and Jones moves on with his mission. Now, I know this is probably a pretty terrible example, right? But I think it illustrates the point that however menacing the demonic realm or however menacing that spiritual darkness might be to us, Right, dressed in black, red sash, brandishing a big sword. However scary it is, it is no match for the Lord Jesus because he has complete authority over that entire spiritual realm. He has authority over all of the spiritual darkness. Right? You don't bring a knife, you don't even bring a sword to a gunfight, right? And if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have nothing to fear. It is one of the great privileges of being a Christian to be able to walk now as a Christian in the confidence of what John told us. Speaking of the whole demonic realm, he said that you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he who is in you, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ himself, John says, is greater than he who is in the world, the unholy spirit right, of Satan himself working through all of his fallen demons. Yes, there is oppression. Yes, there is spiritual warfare. Yes, it can be insanely intense. Yes, we can suffer greatly from these kind of attacks. And yet we need to remember that Jesus has authority over it. And there should never be a single concern from anyone who's truly born again that somehow this thing can take possession of your life or even take up residence there in your life. That recognition that Jesus is greater than that entire realm. He has authority and only he has authority. Did you ever notice that nobody tries to cast a demon out of someone in the name of Buddha? or in the name of Allah, or in the name of any one of the thousands of Hindu gods. It's always Jesus, right? Because even the pagans recognize that there's an authority there that Jesus uniquely has over that realm. And not just because it's recorded in the Bible, but because history, it's been demonstrated throughout the history of the church. We don't need to live in fear of the darkness. Now, we don't want to dabble in it, Right? We don't, whether it's the occult or witchcraft or tarot cards or fortune tellers or Ouija boards, do people even mess with those anymore, or seances, any of these other ways people are trying to tap into that realm, we should stay as far away from that stuff as we can, but we don't need to live in fear. 
right? Jesus said that the light shines, or John, pardon me, said of Jesus, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Then he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The darkness is driven out by the light. But I will also note this. Notice here in the text that even as this unclean spirit was forced to leave, he kind of got in his last licks, didn't he? It says, when the unclean spirit had convulsed the man. Right? Some of your translations may say that the evil spirit shook the man violently, or some say that it threw him down, or others say that it kind of tore him up. So the unclean spirit had to leave, but just the process of him getting out of there, it still brought some pain to this man. And so too, when we're working to rid evil from our lives, right? As that light is driving the darkness out of our lives, when we say, yes, Lord, I want you to have your way in me as those old habits and old relationships and old patterns, as, as we're turning from them or as we're kicking those things out of our lives, there may be some struggle and there may be some hurting and some pain initially, but we'll also see that we will experience the freedom and the blessing eventually. And that, that all of those around us, they're gonna see a difference ultimately if they don't see it immediately. Look at verse 27. It says, then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So first they were astonished, right, at the authority with which Jesus handled the word of God. Now they're amazed at the authority with which he so easily exercised over the realm of the spirit. And that the word amazed is a little bit different. It has the sense of being shocked or struck out of your senses, or dumbfounded, right? You're kind of left at a loss, right? And, and truthfully, I have to think, there are some who look at our lives today in the very same way. I know they do when they look at mine. They say, how did that guy turn into this guy? Well, darkness to light, amen? Think about these poor people. They probably got up on that Sabbath morning and they thought, okay, we got to go to synagogue and we're going to listen to the scribes drone on and on and on about some remote aspect of religion that has no bearing on our lives. And instead what happens, they come here and they experience Jesus. Right? This mind-blowing teaching, this authority he has over the word of God. Then they experience the power of God in this evidence that this completely changed life, changing it from absolute darkness into this peaceful light with one single command. Right, This absolute authority over this spiritual darkness in an instant. Because understand, this may not have been the first exorcism that these people had seen or that they had heard about. The Jewish historian Josephus records that there were examples of possession and of exorcism all throughout the Jewish community. The, the Midrash, which is kind of the, the interpretation that the rabbis where they were trying to fill in the gaps, right, that the Torah, so that's a bad idea in the first place, right? But the Midrash lays out an entire process that the rabbis should follow in order to try to exorcise a demon from a person. But it was this huge deal. It involved all these different incantations and these long, fancy, elaborate, superstitious ceremonies and immersing the person in water and then forcing them to inhale these root herbs from a ring, right? And very often they didn't work. With Jesus, it always works, amen? He didn't need any superstitions or ceremonies. He simply demonstrated this inherent authority he had over the spiritual realm to the amazement of everyone who was there. Word spread quickly, of course, like wildfire, right? God was on the move. It says in verse 29, 
Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now in Capernaum, just a hundred feet from the ruins of this synagogue, a few more steps down toward the Sea of Galilee stand the ruins of what we believe to have been the home of Simon Peter. Right, this home where Jesus and his initial disciples, they all went right here after this Sabbath service. It would become the base of their ministry there. It says in verse 30, but Simon's wife, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. Now understand that what Peter's dear mother-in-law was suffering from was not some kind of a common flu. Right? Dr. Luke in his gospel account says it was a great fever or a high fever, right? suggesting how serious it was. Ancient physicians apparently always made a determination between what was a light fever or a great fever. And given the kind of the topography of that area there in the Sea of Galilee, many suggest this was probably Malta fever or malaria or typhoid fever, all three of which generally ended up in death. Again, in the rabbi's commentary on the Old Testament, they described this type of fever as a burning fever, and they had a whole nother sort of a, a superstitious ritual that they had developed in order to try to get rid of it. It involved, you're going to love this, an iron knife tied to a thorn bush with the hair of the sick person, and then this three-day sort of an incantation they had put together involving verses out of Exodus chapter 3 in the encounter Moses had with the burning bush, burning fever, burning bush, you see? Then after, after they had done this, the entire bush was cut down while this magical formula was announced, and then they just had to hope that the fever went down and that it worked. And of course, sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. So this is the fever that Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from. This is the fever potentially, which rabbis had already tried to use this process with no success at all. And so what do we think possibly is gonna happen in the very next verse? Verse 31 says, so he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and, say it with me, immediately the fever left her and she served them. No spells, no magic, no superstitions, no incantations, just the absolute authority of Jesus now, not just over the spiritual realm of darkness and demons, but over the physical realm of sickness and disease. So not just his authority over spiritual darkness, but his authority over physical illness, right? There was healing just inherent in his touch. And as he touched her, you can only imagine how it would soothe her and calm her, but also immediately it brought complete deliverance from this burning fever that had ravaged her body, which is amazing in and of itself. But wait, there's more. Because just as quickly as the fever left, what happened? Her strength returned so that she was able to get up and start to minister to them. Mark is very careful to make sure that he adds that one little sentence, and she served them. Because the healing is so complete, and it's so immediate. You guys know how long it takes to get over a fever. It takes us two or three days just before we can eat chicken soup, let alone get up and be able to serve people. She has the strength to get up and to do the thing that no doubt she wanted to do more than anything else, which was minister to these people. Now, again, we're not going to go into a 20-minute discussion about healing because, of course, there are times when Jesus heals. There are also times when he doesn't. And those times don't always make sense to us at the time. But suffice to say from the passage, what's important for us to see is that Jesus has the authority to heal which also gives him the authority, what? Not to heal. It also gives him the authority to heal in a way that we might not expect, a way that we might not understand, a way that we might not agree with, because all healing is not physical healing. And there are times when the best 
healing that we can experience ultimately is that healing that comes as we grow spiritually in our faith because he didn't heal us physically. Those are the times when, when we need to learn to trust in his wisdom and to rest in his love. It takes more faith to continue to bear up under an illness than it does to be healed from it. So we need to trust in his ability to heal, in his authority to heal, but also in his wisdom to heal the way that he wants to. Now, no doubt, news of what Jesus just did with this physical healing of the mother-in-law, news of what he did earlier in the spiritual healing that he had accomplished there in the synagogue, all of it is spreading quickly, right? Jesus at this point is trending on all platforms, right? It's midday. So much so, it says in verse 32, that at evening... When the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus did not need the press that came from these demons. Now, over the years we know the Jews had added all kinds of their own traditions to God's law. They had imposed restrictions, you know, Sabbath day restrictions, both on travel and even on healings. So you notice here in verse 32, the people all waited until the sun had gone down and the, the Sabbath day was officially over. Right? They had to see the first three stars appear in the sky before the Sabbath was over. And then at once, what do they do? They all rush right to the door of Peter's house. And they bring this sea of people, right? diseased people, demon-possessed people. Imagine the line to get into that house and every one of them was seeking this word from Jesus or a touch from Jesus, this authority that Jesus had, this power that he had to make them whole. And it kept going on and on. The, the tense of that verb where it says that they brought, the tense is that they just kept on bringing. Continuously, they kept on bringing this people to Jesus. And what did he do? He kept on healing them. Think about this. This was a night like no other night in all of the entire history of the world. An entire town healed, relieved of whatever it was that had afflicted them. And who knows exactly how long this went on. And yet we can only imagine it would have gone on for hours. Capernaum was not a small city. And this whole thing didn't even start until after the sun had fully set. So it very likely pushed on well into the evening and probably long past midnight. And you talk about a picture of a ty the tireless servant, Jesus Christ, as he is seeking out and he's ministering to and he's loving on anyone and everyone who has a need. I love that verse in Micah chapter 7, that the Lord delights in mercy and that he will have compassion on us. Jesus is never too tired to touch us and to heal us. Right? This is his tireless mercy and his compassion for us. He wants to make us whole over and over again. He wants to touch those lives of those people that we bring to them, but we need to bring them to him, right? To keep on bringing them to him. And we need to come to him because he alone has the authority to cast out and to clean up both the physical and the spiritual infirmities that are in all of our lives. Now, no doubt, at the end of a day that had likely begun at least 20 hours earlier, right, you can bet that Jesus would have been exhausted. He would have just pulled up a mat on the floor right next to everyone else, right there in this one-room house that Peter had for what would have been a very well-deserved night of sleep. And so this is just the end of just the first day of Jesus' ministry there in the Galilee. 
And we can go through this account and we can think about this incredibly long first day and we might think, okay, we've got a pretty good picture, right? We've got, you know, as students of the Bible and as followers of Jesus, we've got a pretty good picture of that day, right? We've seen the power, we've seen the authority, we've seen this response to his teaching, we've seen the love and the mercy and the concern for the individual as well as for the multitude. This is a great chapter, right? And we've seen God on the move in these mighty ways, and so I think that's probably enough. And yet Mark would say, au contraire, right? Mark might even say, but wait, there's more. Right? And so he continues and he adds on just this next little important event. So important that you can imagine the powerful impact that this had made on Peter when it happened, and he shared it with Mark. You know, you can know all about what we've just seen that was recorded on this day. And yet you can know it without ever understanding what was really at the core of all of it. Or what was really at the heart of all of it. What was really behind everything that happened. And so I think Mark reveals that to us in verse 35. Because he says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight... He went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. I mean, you would think that Jesus would say, wow, what a day. You know what? Hold my wake-up calls, right? I don't even want to see anybody till I've had like three cups of coffee tomorrow morning. But what does he do? First thing in the morning, he wakes up, he breaks away, and he starts this all over again by spending time with the Father. So just to cut right to it, right? this is what we would call in our lives kind of that time of daily devotions for us. Right? We're, we're devoting those first minutes of the, of the day to the Lord and, and a time of intimacy with him. And if Jesus needed to do that, right? so this was the heavenly source of his strength and of his power. Now, if you're not a morning person, I hate to rub it in, but the language here would indicate that Jesus got up sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., very likely before 4 a.m., right? It says that he got up a long while before daylight, even though he had just been to bed probably a few hours earlier. But Jesus made a choice, right? He chose less sleep and more time for prayer. That was what was of the utmost importance to him because he knew that the source of his strength was his relationship and that close connection of intimacy with the Father. So he goes out early in the morning and this is the very first thing he engages in. I, I have got to say that a devotional time with the Lord to begin the day is absolutely the best time because we get to dedicate the day to the Lord at the very beginning. We get to seek his direction for the day. We get to begin that conversation with him that then we just wanna keep having as we go through our day. Whereas if we do our quiet time, maybe at lunchtime, or if we take our quiet time at the end of the day, well, there's a lot of water that's already flown under the bridge by that point, right? I know for me, I find if I don't pray in the morning like I should, then my prayers in the evening look a lot different because I end up having to repent of a lot of stupid things that I did during the day that I probably could have avoided if I had started the day in prayer. Now I know that's probably just me and godly people like you don't have that same problem. But there's a pro tip for you guys. Verse 36, Mark says, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Let's go, Jesus. You are a hit. Right? You're blowing up. You know, the people want more. This is your moment. Right? So they come and they interrupt him. They interrupt this quiet, solitary, devoted time between Jesus and the Father. And they interrupt him with these words, really by design, they're meant to produce this sense of urgency or this sense of anxiety into, you know, where, where are you been? What are you doing out here? 
We've got to go. We've got to stay with this thing. Something big is happening here in Capernaum, and we need to build on it, right? Let's get these fish into the nets, Jesus, and let's haul them in, right? Now, if you've never, ever read, there's a little booklet called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And if you've never read it, I think that every Christian should read it. We're going to try to get a bunch for our fellowship. If you can't afford one for yourself, Don Jay said he would buy one for you. But the point of the booklet is simply this simple fact. That the urgent and the important in our lives are not always the same thing. And in fact, rarely are they the same thing. And the risk that we run in our Christian lives is to live constantly under the tyranny of those things that are urgent, right? Even well-meaning people, the disciples, right? Even ministries can come in and can try to push out the things that are important in our lives. And there is nothing that's more important in our lives or in any ministry that we're doing, there's nothing that's more important than that time that's spent with the Father to begin the day. Because that's the source of our power and our direction for the day. And isn't it just amazing all of the urgent issues that just sort of come into our minds the minute we go and we start to have a time of prayer. The moment we go and we try to start reading the word of God in the morning. All of a sudden, all of those things that we need to do, right, that we couldn't remember before. You know, I sometimes just keep a little notepad. I don't keep it to take notes on what I'm doing. That's a different notepad. This is a little notepad where I just jot down all of those things that come and they pop into my mind. And I just thank the devil as I do it. Oh, well, thank you so much for reminding me about that. I'm going to write that down and I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. Right? But isn't there always that kind of a, an in, that nagging sort of sense that, you know, you're wasting time. You're wasting this whole block of time that really could be used for something more significant. But can I just tell you, there is nothing that's more significant than the time that we spend in the morning with God. Because that's the time when we order our spirits, and that's the time when he orders our day. So don't let the urgent crowd out what's really important. Right? Always stay focused on the main thing. Look at verse 38. It says, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So Jesus kept his focus right where it was supposed to be, not on the miracles, but on the gospel. And I love the way Jesus doesn't push back. He doesn't explain himself. He just tells them where they were going to go next because the father had just told him where they were going to go next. And it may not have made any sense at all according to what common sense would have told them. Because when Jesus says there, let us go into the next towns, the word towns means unwalled little villages. Right? It means these very small little towns. It means what we would call like a hick town. It would be like leaving Mountain View to go preach in Milpitas, right? Okay, maybe like Los Banos, right, if it was closer, right? But Jesus says, no, guys. You know, what the Father has for our agenda is to leave this big revival that has started here in Capernaum. And he wants us to go now to these hick towns and preach the gospel there. Right? King David said that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. And so often we can be in great danger of missing out on these steps that the Lord is ordering for us. And we will never know what those things are apart from that time that we spent with him as we begin our day in this way. It is one of the most supernatural aspects of our Christian life, the way that he leads and the way that he speaks to us through that time we spend with him. And so they set out that very morning, Mark says in verse 39, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. And so this starts, what we see is the first kind of a 
preaching and teaching tour that Jesus did through the Galilee, right? He's touching and he's healing, right, through his words and through his works, introducing the arrival of this kingdom of heaven. And when we get together next time, we'll finish out the chapter. Now, it's just six more verses, but they are six verses that I think are far too important just to rush through because in them, Mark includes for us this one encounter that Jesus would have during this preaching tour. And we're going to watch as he's going to demonstrate this same power and authority over one more aspect of life. We've seen this morning, right, his powerful authority through the word of God and over the realm of the, the spiritual, right, this oppression from the power of darkness. We've seen his authority over the realm of the physical and over sickness and disease that had plagued the human race, right? But wait, there's more. Because next time, we're going to see yet another powerful example, I think the most powerful example of this amazing authority that Jesus has and that only Jesus has. This authority that he has over what is by far the most pressing problem, right? The most plaguing problem that we face. So how's that for a cliffhanger, right? It's almost like I don't want you to miss church next week, right? I don't want you to miss church next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this passage. And we thank you for the great encouragement that it brings to us, Lord Jesus, about your authority over whatever it is in our lives, Lord, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whatever it is that is challenging us, Lord, or that is threatening us, we know that you and you alone have the authority to deal with it, Lord, and to, to clean that thing up or to cast that thing out of our lives completely. And so... Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you that we, that we serve you, Lord. We thank you that we can have our confidence and our faith in you. And we thank you for this wonderful new life that we have. And we do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand up and let's worship the Lord.